0: Good evening, everyone, and uh, bienvenido a la Biblioteca Inat Prat. Me llamo Reginald Harris, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you tonight uh, with our program with Dos novelistas Cubano-Americano. Um, this is part of our continuing um, and never-ending, it seems, uh, series of programs that we have of authors and other events. We have our lovely compass over there on the table. Uh, which we will also be happy to send you uh, by mail. Uh, there's a sign up sheet over there. And I wanted to point out two upcoming uh, programs tomorrow night. Thanks for reminding me. Is uh, Robert Roper talking, talking about uh, Walt Whitman and his brothers and their lives during the Civil War? And on the 29th of uh, this month, Marita Golden uh, will be here with a number of authors from the area uh talk about their book, It's All Love, Black Writers on Soulmates, Family, and Friends. But tonight, um, we are here to uh, welcome Achio Bejas and my first attempt to mess up your name, Robert Arellano, uh to the uh, library to talk about their novels, Ruins and Havana Lunar. Uh, for us Norte Americanos, Cuba exists as much in the imagination as it does in the real world. Our windows onto the island have been severely limited for decades, often distorted by political posturing. Rarely do we get a chance to see either the beauties or the difficulties of life there clearly. Uh, tonight's authors, both, both Cuban-born and frequent visitors to the island, have used their novels to open these windows. Uh, both works center on the Cuba of the 1990s, with its people facing increased deprivation after the fall of the Soviet Union. In Achiobehas's Ruins, Usnavi, an older true believer... Uh, discovers what may be a priceless Tiffany lamp, and has to choose between the love of his family and the revolution he has supported since he was a young man. Robert Arigliano's, uh book, Havana Lunar, focuses on the trials of Dr. Manolo Rodriguez as he is caught between a teenage prostitute he has befriended, the pimp and his bodyguard she's trying to uh, escape from, and La Policia. Uh, both succeed in taking us on wonderfully rich and atmospheric journeys, while at the same time succeeding in grabbing readers with stories uh, and strangely different yet familiar characters. Um, stories, well, and actually, okay, I'll, I'll confess, this is one of those cliches that you couldn't put it down. I couldn't put them down, seriously. <laughs> no kidding. So they're really wonderful. Um, so thank you very much for writing them. Um, Let's see, born in Havana, Ache Obejas was six when her parents came to the United States in the wake of the Cuban Revolution. She grew up in Michigan City, Indiana. Yay, Indiana. <laughs> and later moved to Chicago, yay, Chicago, where she's currently right in residence at DuPaul. Her previous books including, include two land award-winning novels, Memory Mambo and Days of All* awe, and her first novel, the wonderful and wonderfully titled, We Came All The Way From Cuba So You Could Dress Like This. I love, it's a great book, but I thought that title, it's a, it's title. a knockout title. <laughs> title. Okay. Um, she has also translated Junot Diaz's uh, Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde into Spanish, and in fact... Oddly enough, here's a yet another commercial. Puno uh, Diaz will be here in April, April 18th, Saturday, April 18th, to headline the City Lit Festival, so here's a great little confluence of, uh, of things here. Uh, Robert is the author of two previous novels, Fast Eddie, King of the Bees, and Don DiMaio of La Plata, uh, a political satire based on a real-life mayor of Providence, Rhode Island and we here in Baltimore know something about political satires <laughs> and mayors, so I'll just leave that be. Um, his parents fled Cuba in 1960, and he's visited, uh, returned ten times at least, chronicling the revolution in journalism, essay, and song. So, todos por favor, ayúdame and welcoming Acho Bejas and Robert Aviano a la Biblioteca. Uh, thank you so much.
1: Yeah, I found
2: my page. We'll read left to right. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you. That was so kind of you. And thank you for hosting us. And so nice to hear that you couldn't put the book down again. Just the, the worst insult I think Dick Cavett said you could ever give an author is to say, once I put down your book, I couldn't pick it up again. <laughs> <laughs> so that the cliche held true for you—that you couldn't put it down. Thank you, and thank you. It's just a real honor to be here, as, as you know, who live near here in Baltimore, who've ever been to a reading here before. This library is legendary, and uh, and and the hospitality is too. Now, in my heart, so thank you for uh, be, being here. And uh, is there anyone here who's been to Cuba before? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. it's good. I always like to ask that, just to get a little context and feel out my crowd. Wow, what's no, your name? Where? <laughs> At Harvard. Yeah, yeah. 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 Wow. He, he had come there I guess after the UN appearance. Right.
1: That was yeah. And uh, I was
2: wanted was asked to give him a big question. Who's he gonna hold election?
0: Uh-huh. Mm. Samuel Beer, professor of government, asked me, prompted me to ask that question. Yeah. And he got explosive. And he said, uh, we've already voted with our blood and our feet and you know, so yeah. already the answers weren't what we were trying to coach you.
2: Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) help him out. Yeah. Well, uh, this is great. We we now
1: he'll tell you that he has uh, that they've had elections and um, that they've had real elections and that they're the most democratic elections on earth. That's that's his line. Um, But in fact, there's always only one candidate for any one post. (laughs) So, I mean, seriously, at at every level, there's always only one candidate for each post. So it's always really interesting to me how that's so democratic. Well, Well.
2: Achi and I are just starting to get to know each other, although I've gotten to know you not only through this book, but through some of your editing work, and even through some of your journalism. I had to research it when I reviewed her collection of stories, Havana Noir, for The Believer last year. Um, But I'm tempted now to say, even though we've probably spoken to each other all of six minutes, you know, know, we're going to have some question and answer after we both read briefly. But for some reason, that Uh little detail reminded me of uh, a little placard that I saw uh, at a Cafe Cubano stand in Little Havana in Miami five or ten years ago. Aquí no se habla de político. Yeah. Right? Here, politics is not spoken. Right. Of course, nothing except politics is spoken. It's ever they, they, spoken. Yeah, yeah. It's, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, anyone else? Anyone here from Johns Hopkins? I just you know want to know if there's any Hopkins folks out there tonight. My uncle, whose name was Robert Ariano, taught there for some years. They told me that, and I've got to go get a picture of that sometime. There's a theater named Robert Ariano Theater, and so he was he was in the writing program there for 30 years. So, um, Yeah, I, I visited here for the first time. You know, I visited my uncle when I was four years old, and we went to an Orioles game. And, um, mm. I just, I've got my, my, I feel like my toughest audience tonight is uh, my dear friend's uh, uh, 11-year-old and <laughs> his little brother. And so for Tab and Max... I'm going to try to read stuff that might be interesting uh, because there's a scene in the book which is largely a flashback of the character, the doctor, Mano Rodriguez, as a boy. Uh, And I thought I would read that tonight in, in their honor. And thank you for coming, and thank you to my friends for being here. Que calientico y rico esta! Aurora bounced me in the furrow of her glorious thighs off-key harmonizing with the man mamboing down 23rd Street, ya no se puede pedir más, with her ebony smooth skin and pendulous breasts. It was the housekeeper, Aurora, who was the light of my young life. Not Mama. Mama was downstairs in her room, shutters closed against the heat of the Havana afternoon. She stayed in bed for long periods of time, days sometimes. My father had left for Miami in 69, two months before I was born, and now it was my 10th birthday, and Mama was dying of cancer. Aurora would insist, Mama, hug me, like you would entreat a sick person to eat. Un abrazo, señora, por favor. After school, I had gone straight up to Aurora's attic to play with dominoes until that twilight hour when the peanut vendor breezed by. As soon as we heard the call coming up from Calle 23, "Caserita, no te acuestas a dormir. And by caserita I knew he meant Aurorita. She was his little housekeep. Aurora scooped me up, shifted me to her hip, threw open the French doors, And lowered the line with a peso in the basket. She reeled the basket back in, and Machado, our pet dog, stood on his hind legs. Aurora swatted him. Mendigo! She stuffed the hot nuts in my overalls. Aurita, I said, what's that man singing about that's so hot and tasty? Algo que tú tienes en los pantalones. ¿Y qué es eso? Yanking the paper cone from my front pocket, Aurora cried, Money! Aurora unraveled the cone and poured me two hot handfuls. It was good. I knew what the man meant. You really didn't want to go to bed without a little something hot in your belly. After Mama died, I developed a small hemorrhage beneath my right eye. Many photos and x-rays were taken. Dermatologists and neurosurgeons first diagnosed that if the hematoma were to burst, I could suffer a massive and likely lethal stroke. I carried a time bomb in my head. Should they schedule surgery? Would it do any good, or would it just trigger the detonator? Although I was allowed to leave the hospital in a few days, I had to return daily for medical observation. After two months, the doctors decided that the thrombus was benign. Although the one thing the lab coats did was figure out to leave me alone, my case was considered a milestone for socialist medicine, a great prognostic step. The chief pediatrician was flown to Gdansk and Stockholm and Mexico City for conference presentations, complete with slide projections. An intern pointed out that the macula was shaped a little like Havana on the map, the custodians of communist healthcare came up with a term for my infarctus incubatus, indexed in medical textbooks throughout Cuba, China, East Germany, Russia, and Angola. Havana Lunar. My grandmother, my mama, moved into the house, but she grieved so deeply for mama that I was left in Aurora's care. In this way things were not much different from before. I did not play with other children. I would look in the mirror wondering why the mark shows up on one side of my nose in photos and the other in the glass. I worried that I didn't really know which side to hide from strangers. What most disturbed me about someone seeing it for the first time was not the steady stare, the curled lip, or the involu- uh, involuntary que raro, or que asco. It was the follow-up among those brazen enough to ask aloud, how did you get that? Aurora would take me to Cemeterio Colon, the necropolis, to visit Mama. We passed the monument to the firemen, dozens of them who perished in a great conflagration at the turn of the century. On each corner of the tomb, a stone mourner bowed her head. I tried to peer up, Under the shrouds at their eyes, but these statues were never given sight. We passed the tomb of La Milagrosa, and Aurora told me the story of this famous resident of the necropolis. The woman died delivering a stillborn child. They were buried together, the child's corpse laid to rest between the mother's legs, as was the custom in the early part of the century. Years later, when the widower requested that his late wife be moved, the remains were exhumed and they found the infant skeleton cradled in the mother's arms. Pilgrims visit her grave every day, requesting her intercession in all kinds of family matters. At the corner of Ache y Ocho was Mama. Going to the grave was therapeutic for me. It was a place to be left alone not only by the doctors, but by all the strangers around the neighborhood or at school who had heard of my tragedy. Just by stepping into Cemetery Colon, I was inoculated against anyone coming up to me and saying, I'm sorry. I closed my eyes and tried to picture Mama's face. She wasn't so different in death from the months leading up to it, losing a fight with cancer and very depressed. Now that she was out of her suffering, I loved her more than ever. There were days, sometimes many in succession, when I wished she had taken me with her. At school, I was given the nickname La Mancha. I developed a crush on a girl in my class, but was too young to know what to do about it. She sat directly to my left, and I stole glances all day long. Her light blue eyes, such a beautiful rarity on this island... The girl's eyes were windows onto another place, somewhere remote from Cuba, somewhere altogether different from this world. During reading time, I lifted my book to shield my face and gaze sideways at those Arctic eyes, while the teacher, an embittered Catholic widower, graded papers with last judgment gusto. I taught myself how to speed read through Edad de Oro. If I scanned the basic gist of the issue in four or five minutes, I was ready to deflect the oral comprehension questions. And then I could spend a good quarter hour getting lost in her icy countries. That's the cold north where my father is, I told myself. I knew winters in Miami weren't icy, but there was a supermarket with a big machine that made a mountain of snow in the parking lot to entertain the children last Christmas. Which is what the gusanos celebrate two weeks before Reyes Magos. Perhaps if I touched the girl's hand and looked into those eyes, I could travel there to the cold north. Manolo, ¿qué te pasa con el cuello? The teacher came right down our row and loomed over me like a malicious gargoyle. Suddenly subjected to my classmates' scrutiny, I didn't even have the presence to turn away my fellow students, happy to be distracted from their tasks, began to chatter, and the girl turned to face me. She was annoyed, anxious to get back to her book. She was looking at me for the first time, and there was nothing special registering for her. It was utter indifference I was looking back at. The teacher pinched my cranium and rotated my flushed face toward the book. Que bonitos ojos tienes, no? the teacher blurted. The entire class erupted in laughter except for the girl with blue eyes. As punishment, the teacher made me switch seats with the boy sitting in front of the blue-eyed girl. No longer was I just La Mancha. I was also called El Enamorado, and my beloved became Ojitos Lindos. Near the end of the school year, I set myself the task of observing a ghost. When Aurora was asleep one night, I left the house for the place they live, the necropolis. I boosted myself over the wall and snuck past the gargantuan arch wherein the groundskeeper lay sleeping. The moon at its brightest burned my cheeks. I penetrated deep into the heart of the cemetery to the corner of Ache y Ocho. I sat cross-legged against the tomb of Mama's neighbor, cracked where the tree roots had pushed through and waited for a ghost to show. The sharp spines of obelisks glowed against the night sky, and my accelerated heart rate made it impossible for me to sleep, but finally, toward morning, I lay on my side to rest. I opened my eyes onto a deep blue dawn. A narrow column of light emerged from the earth. My body, rigid with sleep paralysis, I couldn't move to make sense of the apparition. I stared at it for an unmeasurable moment and felt no fear or curiosity, just the serene indifference of a hypnotic. Mesmerized, I shut my eyes. They didn't open again until I was aroused by the sour notes of a funeral procession. The brightness was blinding now. A figure stood above me, eclipsing the sun, And when I shaded my eyes, I was astonished to see the living spirit of my own longing come to greet me. Ojitos lindos. What are you doing here? My father, she said with a jerk of the head in the direction of the funeral. He's the one in the box. Her soft voice betrayed no emotion, only the indifference of a child before the drama of death. What about you? I sat up and squinted at the sky. The sun had already risen above the tombs. I was embarrassed to admit I had been trying to see a ghost, so I said, visiting my mother. It occurred to me that my mother and her father were both ghosts. They were alike, Mama and Ojitos Lindo's father. I stood up and flicked the straw from my hair. I'm sorry I caused you so much trouble at school. What do you mean? They called you names. They called you names, too. She looked hard at me. Burning and wishing I hadn't reminded her, I looked away. Well, don't you want to see? See what? My eyes. I looked up, and Ojitos Lindos glared back at me. Nobody had ever looked at me in quite that way. She was not staring at the mark. She looked at me and saw me the real me, not La Mancha. With the big blemish on my cheek, people rarely looked me in the eye, but here in the necropolis, with ojitos lindos, nothing came between. I gazed straight through the light blue of her eyes to the brightening sky behind. The color was the same. I have to go. My mother will send my uncle searching for me. When I returned to the house, nobody asked where I'd been. The block was buzzing with news of the occupation at the Peruvian embassy, and Aurora spent all day in front of the television. On Monday, Ojitos Lindos wasn't in school. Vacations were nearing, and her mother had arranged for her to stay at home in Oriente during their time of mourning. In the weeks after the fiasco at the Peruvian embassy, the port of Mariel became choked with boats from Florida picking up gusanos a wealthy cousin sought Aurora out and took her to Miami to prove something, perhaps just that he had become wealthy. At the end of the school year, a neighbor took me to the bus terminal where I was packed off to Pinar del Rio to spend the summer with my father's family. When I first came to Pinar del Rio at age 11, I was in awe of what a different world existed on this island. All I had known before was Havana, a crumbling city of stone, like a necropolis for the living. But in Viñales, all was green, and Sugarloaf Mountains hulked around the valley like slumbering elephants, sheltering the soil of tobacco country. My cousin Emilio met the bus where it let me off at the Mural Prehistorico, and we found our way between the rows of tobacco plants across the valley and up the side of our grandfather's mountain. At the top... Abuelo sat in his chair in front of his house. I saw you coming an hour ago. I kissed his cheek. Tienes los ojos del águila, abuelo. Abuela emerged from the bojillo and pressed me to her breast. Pobre Manolo, tu mamá en el cielo y tu papá más lejos que eso. When Abuela said my father was further away than heaven, she meant Miami. Together with my uncles, aunts, and cousins, our number breached a dozen, but somehow Abuela managed to seat the entire family in two shifts and feed us all in under an hour. Abuelo had made the table out of the remains of one of the last trees he had cut for the walls of the bojil. For the first serving with his eldest sons, Abuelo sat at the head, where one leg was a little shorter than the rest. Abuelo kept it this way because if he had to make a point, one thump from his rock fist served to upset every dish down the entire length. During the second sitting, a stray pea or garbanzo rolled off someone else's plate and into my domain. The instant I shoved that legume into my mouth, my cousin Manolito hollered, Pendejo, mano! Ese era mi frijol mágico! That was my magic bean. Unfazed, I gobbled up the tidbit. Manolito then expanded on his patent outburst with sadistic little remarks like, día mientras sudaba en la cosecha, guardaba ese frijolito aquí All day I was working in the fields and I kept that little bean right in my butt. <laughs> my cousins shrieked with glee and collapsed all over each other, troubling the tippy table with volcanic tremors. Abuela whacked the back of Manolito's skull with a serving spoon. No seas sucio. Abuelo typically ignored Manolito's comments on my lunar But when he heard Manolito say that I probably wouldn't be wanting cake on my birthday, Abuelo turned savage, lunging halfway down the length of the table and hammering his youngest son with a closed fist, cutting off the customary hyperactivity and leaving all the the cousins sullen. Flashback. (laughs) Ten candles on a cake, right in front of my face. Chocolate, my favorite. The cake was small but special. It was not from the panaderia or the lady down the street who made the same cake for all the boys and girls. Mama had made this one herself. She was strangely cheerful, singing, and Machado was dancing on his back legs. Spinning the cake, Mama lit each candle with a straw she held in a trembling hand. While the cake went around, I counted to 10, but I couldn't remember if I had counted the first candle already. Singing Las Mañanitas, Mama kept turning the plate, and I counted the candles on their second rotation, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. If I kept counting, could I continue time traveling? Could I keep flying through the years from birthday to birthday? I blew out the flames, making a wish for mama to get better, for good. My mother cut the cake right in half, and we ate off the same plate. We didn't even use forks. It's your birthday, so we get to eat with our hands. Under the chocolate, there was a sour flavor that made my tongue curl up. Isn't it good, she asked. It wasn't very good. I didn't want to hurt her feelings, so I said yes and put a little more in my mouth. While mama shoveled the crumbs from the plate, I spit out most of my piece and let Machado quietly gulp the half chewed offering. Two hours later, my mother and I were lying side by side on stretchers. Terrible pain shot through my abdomen. Mama was unconscious, and the doctor was trying to get me to speak. ¿Qué fue, niño? ¿Qué tomaron? ¿O fue algo que te dieron de comer? Un pastelito. Saying the words, plunged knives into my gut. ¿De qué era el pastelito? Chocolate. ¿Quién lo preparó? Mi mamá. The doctor turned back on my mother and began pounding her chest. A nurse said, the police told me the dog died too. The doctor told the nurse to get an orderly to cut open machado and find out what was in the cake. He took a long tube like a yellow water snake and forced it into the back of my throat. I gagged and my esophagus began convulsing, emptying my stomach of Aurora's peanuts. My mother never woke up. She had crushed a full bottle of her chemotherapy pills and poisoned the cake. My own mild overdose caused a severe hemorrhage beneath the right eye. Havana Lunar. I'll stop there.
1: I'm going to read just a a little piece from uh, Ruins. Um, What you need to know. (laughs) Um, The story takes place in 1994, um, shortly after the collapse of the Soviet Union and Cuba's economy is absolutely uh, catastrophic. Um, The story um, takes place mostly in Havana, but uh, in part also in a little fishing village outside of Havana called Cohima. Uh, prior to 1994, it was known as uh, the residence of, the former residence of uh, Ernest Hemingway. Um, he actually uh, left a very beautiful uh, house there, which I'm always sort of amused at when the government guides take tourists because you can't actually go in. So they just point, and you can like look through the windows. That's it. Um, but in 1994, there was a, a tremendous exodus out of uh, Cuba uh, through Cohima. About seventy, eighty thousand people left in the course of like a couple months. Um, they left in just about anything that would float. Um, the main character in this book, his name is Navi, and he is very very much a a good communist he's completely committed to the revolution to the idea of the social experiment embedded in the revolution Um, he's committed to the point that he doesn't engage in any black market business even though that's what's happening all around him and he sort of goes the long route uh, to everything because everything has to be sort of legal all of his friends um, think this is ridiculous and um, they make fun of him for it they mock him for it, they taunt him and they call him Salau, which means cursed. Hemingway translated it as the worst kind of unlucky, and he used it in uh, The Old Man and the Sea to describe Santiago. Um, Usnavi lives in a tenement in Old Havana, and he has nothing at all in there except the very, very basic things that you can imagine, you know, a bad uh, you know, little refrigerator. He lives with his wife and daughter. But... He has one object that he inherited from his mother. Uh, It's a very large stained glass lamp, uh, which may or may not be a Tiffany. And whether it is, in fact, a Tiffany or not, of course, changes the value of the lamp. Uh, If it was made by a Cuban or if it was made by Tiffany, it becomes a very different, sort of experience. So he's um, oftentimes, in, in the course of this, he has to contend with uh, w- you know, what to do with this lamp, if anything, because he can't seem to figure out how to see it as anything other than as an heirloom, as a, sent- a, a piece of having only sentimental value. Um, and he often um, spends long periods of time um, looking at this lamp and imagining things in its design. And when he uh, does that he very frequently imagines Africa he has a kind of an idealistic uh, almost miss, mythical sort of take on what Africa might be so the story picks up is um, he and his very best friend Abdullio are on their way to Kohimar Abdullio's family is going to leave and they have come and they've asked Usnavi to help them please Uh, And now he and uh, and Usnavi and Abdulio are on their way to Kohimar on their bikes. The two men arrived in Kohimar hours later, but while it was still dark. They'd ridden to the beach on their flying pigeon bikes, manual and heavy, made in China, in spite of the English name. The Chinese can divine the future, but they can't make a lightweight bike, a gasping Abdulio muttered the curls on his head uncoiling in the breeze, looking now like loose pieces of a dirty sponge. The ride to Kohima was always against the wind. Usnavi kept pedaling. Because there was no transportation in the middle of the night, because non-motorized vehicles were strictly prohibited through that Havana tunnel, they'd had to go around the bay, adding even more time to their journey. Usnavi wore a lock and chain around his waist to tie his bike but Abdulio had clipped to his a nifty, lightweight, U-shaped lock, <clears throat> solid steel, and made in the U.S., guaranteed theft-proof. They entered the cozy fishing village as a silent parade of young men and women made a line to the shore. Carrying inner tubes and wooden planks, they looked like rows of giant ants hauling lifesavers and toothpicks in the moonlight. Watching it all from the protected confines of elegant Las Terrazas, One of Ernest Hemingway's old haunts were foreign tourists, their giggles bubbling in the air, and journalists, too, TV camera lights washing the landscape. Also somewhere in the restaurant, Gregorio Fuentes, Hemingway's old boat captain, now practically mummified, propped up to play checkers or dominoes for the tourist's delight. Near the rocky shore, Cujima is all dog's teeth, a snarling bank of coral and junk, Groups of people hammered away at their rafts, tying ropes around pieces of rubber, metal kegs, and plastic jugs for buoyancy. This was all out in the open, the revolution suspended. On this night, different from every other night in Usnavi's memory, the town sloped down to the sea, but he labored to envision instead plateaus and rugged ranges. In his mind, he was somewhere else, Katanga or Shaba an impenetrable forest full of wild geese and ostriches, buffalo and lions. He imagined not rafters, but fields of coffee and cotton, rubber trees, coconut and plantain, timber from cedar, mahogany, iraco, and redwood. The staring eyes were the peacocks asnavi had never seen, pelicans, herons, and other wild birds. While the work continued on the beach, no one said a word except the local fishermen, who held tightly to the rolls of lines and gaffs, nets, and tattered masts. Their own boats securely put away or anchored under guard. They sat vigilantly on the seawall, their arms around their chests, across their chests, sucking on cigars and hand-rolled cigarettes, passing judgment on the work before them. One guy tapped a long hardwood stick on the ground. Another held a machete against his hip in a not so subtle warning to potential thieves. That won't go. No, said an old man in a red cap pointing to a particularly chancy-looking dinghy. The others nodded agreement. Keva, explained yet another fellow, shaking his head in dismay at a throng of young men and women who were now lifting what looked like a white wooden kayak. They carried it to the water, where it swayed on the surface. As soon as one of the young men stepped into it, his weight took it down as if it were made of paper. A collective moan went up from the group while they quickly scrambled to recover what they could from the ocean and start again. The fishermen laughed and laughed. Some of the rafts, of course, did float, some precariously, others effortlessly. Usnavi listened to the dip and push of their efforts as the moon sank from sight. In a clearing, Usnavi finally saw the boat being crafted by Abdullio's family, which was dependent on four large industrial inner tubes. Usnavi didn't want to know where they'd gotten them. Abdullio's nephew secured the craft tighter with the length of rope Usnavi had gotten for them. Obdulio's daughter thanked Usnavi for the powdered milk with a quick, timid peck on the cheek. The baby was fast asleep on her shoulder, undisturbed by the bustle of activity. Usnavi moved quickly away from them. He did not want to look at the rope. He did not want to consider the powdered milk. Before he'd gathered them up, the rope had belonged to the workers of Cuba. That milk had been for the island's children. As crazy as it seemed, he really believed this, his heart twisted in anguish because he so believed this. He let himself replay the scene at the bodega, watched himself as if he were someone else, carefully lifting the rope and powdered milk his dear friend needed, knowing he could not replace them, knowing that everything was wrong now, everything was ugly and sick. That he loved Abdullio and his family was not the matter. After all, it was Che himself who said that a true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love, that he loved them so much that he put them above everyone else. That was the black smear on his soul now. Usnavi's hands trembled, his eyes moistened with shame. How, he was asking himself, his hands deep in his empty pockets, how could he ever question anyone else? How could he ever seek out the answers to other missing items at the bodega, rice and soap and cooking oil that were sometimes reduced by half from arrival to dispensing? He would never not with a clear conscience, not without first confessing his own transgressions, be able to ask that the others be mindful and disciplined, that they be selfless in their duties. He could see his co-workers shrinking from him, or worse. What if they suddenly included him in their schemes? What if his crime automatically implicated him in every other petty theft of the bodega? What if, once revealed, he was expected to cover from everyone else so that they'd cover for him? Usnabi shuddered. He thought of Lydia, his wife, for a moment, worried about what her response would be. His stomach flipped, made him a little seasick. He stepped back from the water. In Miami, said Abdullio, now beside him and gazing out of the gloom before them, maybe I'll finally learn to drive a car. You could learn to drive here, Usnavi replied, thinking how it had never really been essential. Nobody's stopping you, Abdullio sighed. Yeah, but what for, and in whose car? I'll never get to own a car here. "'Neither will you, my militant friend. "'You think you'll get a car there? "'You have any idea how much a car costs?' Usnavi asked. "'No, but my brother, my brother in Miami, he has a car, "'and God willing, I'll get to drive it. "'Seems like a really stupid reason to leave. "'Come on, Usnavi. "'Don't you have any aspirations? "'Don't you want a place to live that's made for humans "'instead of laboratory mice? "'Don't you want a little privacy with your wife? "'Don't you have any dreams?' "'This is my dream,' Usnavi said.' He stepped away again, watching as another group labored over planks and tube, but Abdulia moved right along with him. Usnavi wanted to say something, anything, so that they wouldn't go. Abdulia persisted. Come on, when you look at that crazy lamp of yours, do you realize it's the only thing you have of value, my friend? Don't you see anything in all that light and color besides clouds and giraffes and Africa? Africa. I mean, Usnavi, how perverse is that? Who dreams of Africa when you can dream of Miami? Don't you see any hope at all? Usnavi took a deep breath. Abdullio, I am here because you are my friend. Now I will ask you to be a friend to me and stop this crap. I'm not leaving, now or ever. Abdullio shrugged. Fine, he said, as his nephews began to drag their raft to the water. It eased in with squeaks and whines, bouncing on the soft waves with the weight of each new person. Usnavi took off his shoes and socks and stepped into the sea to help. He held on to the raft and steadied it as they loaded up, all the while feeling the sharp rocks under his feet, the ticklish weeds wrapping themselves around his ankles. The local fisherman looked on, nodding approval at the superior work. Finally, it was Abdullio's turn to board. Look, your wife and daughter. Snavi, you need to get over the saintly devotion, your ridiculously selfish virtues, Abdullio said, one foot on the gravelly sand, the other on the shaky vessel. If you're going to stay... For God's sake, at least do something for them. Get some dollars. If you sell that lamp, it's a monstrosity. It must be worth at least a few hundred, maybe even a thousand dollars. Think of what you could do. You could start your own little business on the side. You could buy things Nana and Lydia only dream about. Abdulio's daughter took his hand to help him sit, and with the bereft Usnavi waist deep in the water, the raft pushed off. Good luck, said Usnavi, waving weakly. Good luck to you, my friend, Abdulio shot back. The raft glided away, pulled north by the currents. Its shadows clung to the shore at first, black figures thinning, then turning into gold strings reaching back to the island. As he watched, Usnavi discerned the arcs of flying fish in the distance, like pebbles skipping across the surface. He felt something collapse in his chest. This was it, he realized with a start. This was the last time he'd ever see his lifelong friend. In a moment... Abdullio's raft had vanished into the bright nimbus of dawn. The trip home from Kohimar was usually easier, downhill with the wind in the biker's favor, but this time it was longer. Usnavi couldn't count the hours. They seemed so vivid and unreal. Part of the difficulty was that Abdullio had left his bike as a gift for Nena, and he was having difficulty maneuvering both bikes at once. He tried riding his and leading the other with one hand on the handlebars, but the roads around the bay to Havana had been demolished. Then his feet began to hurt, taking off his shoes and socks to get in the sea and help push off Abdulio's raft had exposed his bare soles to the craggy reefs. Not only had he been cut, bitten, and scratched in a million places, but his joints ached and his skin itched from the dried salt. To make things worse, as soon as his Navi decided against trying to ride and surrendered to walking home holding a bike on each side, It began to rain. A rush of water soaked him from the tip of his head to the squishy toes of his now surely ruined shoes. The downpour grew so intense that Usnavi couldn't see anything but a gray mist in front of him. It fell with all the noisy fury of a galloping herd of horses, tiny hoofs rampaging all over his exposed skin. There was no point in running for cover. The shower had come after an ear-splitting crack in the sky, as if it had abruptly opened up, sending a cascade from the heavens to this caiman of dirt. Usnavi wondered about Abdullio and his family. Would they survive the storm? Might they just be right, just out of reach? Or were they now bailing water out of the boat, desperate and scared? Maybe, thought Usnavi, turning the matter over. The weight of so many Cuban prayers had finally eroded celestial resistance. Maybe, he pondered, the layer of sky that works as a stream bed had been undermined, Finally giving way and discharging into this divine cataract. This, this is Mose Atune, Victoria Falls, he mused, as the water plunged from hundreds of feet above him with a mighty howl and pounded on his shoulders and back. If only this could be harvested somehow, if only Cuba could absorb this awesome force. A drenched Tusnavi was limping along when he thought he saw a shadowy shape something eerie, its limbs oversized, its head sprouting a kind of feathery ornament. Usnavi stared ahead as the shapes slipped right through the screen of water in front of him. He stopped, leaned a bike against each hip, and ran a hand over his face. But when he looked up again, he saw not one, but several black stick figures sneaking in and out of view in the blink of an eye. As Usnavi looked on, he realized they'd begun to take notice of him, too. He was sure one had just made a quick gesture his way, pointing and snapping its fingers. Another clicked its tongue. Usnavi shook his head. Then he looked again. There they were, the figures now more roundly human, less black and more muddled, rushing in and out of the undulating sheets of rain. There were voices, too, each mixed into the soundtrack of thunder and the rattle of water on the pavement nearby awnings and cars. Somebody, somewhere, was playing with sticks, their tick-tock marking the time. There was a flicker of light, a flash. Instantly Usnabi realized he was in Old Havana, right on Tejadillo Street, only blocks from home. Cuidado, abuelo, cuidado, a young man called out as he snaked around Usnavi. He was carrying long pieces of wood, their ends jagged as if they'd been torn. Usnavi pulled back, avoiding the spear points by centimeters. Ojo, ojo, called out another man as he dashed by, almost running into him, pushing a wheelbarrow full of bricks still covered with paint and mortar. The chalky stench of wet plaster rose like vapor. Usnavi! A woman shouted, but with an unmistakable tone of annoyance. For God's sake, you're in the way. It was, he noticed, his upstairs neighbor, shamelessly reaping construction materials from the ruins of the building next to him, a derrumbe that had suddenly come into view. The building lay like a crushed egg, part of its white walls piercing the exposed insides, a smashed mirror, a stained mattress ripped open like a vital organ, its yellow foam guts growing grotesquely in the rain. Yamile, what's going on? Usnavi called out to her. What are you doing? She rushed by him with doorknobs and light switches dangling from her hands like viscera. What does it look like? It looked, Usnavi thought, like a scourge of locusts. His neighbors swarmed the body of the place, each tearing off bits that seemed two or three times their size and weight. They worked just like the rafters at Kohima in utter silence. Thank you.
2: Thanks. That's a great question. I'm really uh, surprised to look back and realize that I started working on this almost, well 18 years ago. My first trip to Cuba was uh, 1992. And um, I you know, I, I, I went at, at a time when not a whole lot of Americans were going yet. I think there was a period there in the mid to late '90s, when um, folks found out. Yeah, it it probably coincided with the Clinton administration's lax enforcement of the embargo. (laughs) Can I say that now? Uh, Probably. Which was, you know, I I went legally the very very first time, and I shouldn't say anything about the other times. (laughs) But But the very first time I went, I learned, oh, gosh, you know, it's not... It's not Cuba that makes it hard. It's the U.S. Treasury. You know the fact that you, there's an embargo that keeps you from going and spending dollars in Cuba. I don't know. If people who've been to Cuba know that you you had to get permission or a license, not from the State Department, you know, but from the Treasury Department. Uh, that's the nature of the way the embargo is. I think still enforced. Uh, going there though uh, in '92, um, I didn't know what to expect. I, I had grown up partly in Miami and partly in New Jersey, not far from here, the fifth child in a family of five children, uh, the only one not born in Havana. My parents left, and I was the baby before I was born. Um, But everyone, you know, said, oh, gosh, you can't go back there. I mean, not only because, you know, hasta que el diablo Fidel Castro se muera, (laughs) we'll never go back to that island until Fidel Castro the devil is dead, but also because they said, oh, God, the people are going to be hostile to you. You're a gusano literally a worm or, uh, you know, someone who left and didn't stay for the great project of the Cuban Revolution. Um, but I found just the opposite. From the very first day, my very first taxi ride, you know, uh, I, I, I got a message to bring back to you. <laughs> the, the taxi driver, when, you know, he guessed after four or five tries because there weren't a lot of Americans traveling there yet. Americano? No. Tú tienes que traer un mensaje al pueblo americano. You have to bring a message to the American people. Esa cosa entre los gobiernos es otra cosa. Eso no tiene nada que ver con la gente. That thing about the governments is another thing. It doesn't have anything to do with the people. El pueblo cubano uh, quiere mucho y quiere reunirse con el pueblo norteamericano. The Cuban people really want to get back together and have a big pachanga with the American people. And go tell them that and tell them, you know, to, to visit. And And I found that... Through almost everywhere I went, you know, even when I occasionally met, you know, uh, folks who were government—I uh, guess the best word would be apparatchniks, <laughs> who were a little cool toward me, I, I I always felt like, oh gosh, you know, there's there's really a, a great camaraderie between um, the the people of Cuba and Americans, not just Cuban Americans like myself, who who sort of felt a. Uh, Uh, a a natural kinship and so I started to scribble stories and they were just the stories of the people of the street and and it's funny too because reading Achi's novel and then you know also reading together with her I think we heard in our trip some of the same anecdotes of the special period. Thank you.